ho, 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 hey there. How's it going? Just spent a little too long in the uh, in the Midwest. The uh, past 10 days or so have been great spending time with family, but Happy New Year. Great to see you and speak with you. This is a video slash podcast in reference to a article that I just finished, one that mimics something that I also did at the start of 2017. This is right around when I moved to Seattle. It was kind of a big life shift for me because it was the first time in a long time where I didn't have any restaurant jobs lined up. And so basically my purpose behind writing that original piece was to lay out the blueprint of this is what I'm thinking about. This is where I'm getting my inspiration from. A lot of it was, listen, I'm, I, I didn't go to school for any of this stuff. There's no way to go to school for social media or how to be a YouTuber or, I mean, there's like video school that you could go to, but that wasn't the kind of stuff that I was interested in doing. The people that I wanted to emulate were almost all self-taught. So I wrote this piece called my 2017 playbook. And something happened along the line where I didn't write anything in 2018. And I get into it into this article in a little bit. But 2019 is different. I am laying it all out again. I want the so the 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 title of the article, and I'm gonna have it kind of up on the video if anybody wants to kind of see it. It is called My 2019 Playbook. What I learned in 2018, tips, influencers, books, channels, and goals for the year ahead. Wow. It tells uh, it tells me it's a 27-minute read, which is very interesting. That's going to that's gonna tell you how long this podcast might end up being. I'm thinking it's going to be a little bit longer. I know that some people enjoy reading. I know that some people really can get deep into articles, and they still like consuming written content. I know that for me, I really enjoy consuming video content, uh, especially audio content in the past few months or so has been really, really important to me because it allows me to consume a lot more volume. And then it also gives me with video, especially context. And that helps a lot with someone like me who's very visual, but I'm also very keen on knowing that a lot of you are like me and that's why we get along. That's why you've decided to subscribe and give me your attention. Also, something that I should note that isn't in the um, article quite yet, and it's something that as I do this podcast, I should and I am. I'm going to open something up right here where I can kind of um, take some notes and make sure that I am editing this as I'm speaking it audibly. And then hopefully there will be an opportunity to, it's already published, like you can read it right now. And a few people have already, which is great. But I feel like um, it would be a shame if this only made itself into a written piece on Medium. It is on Medium, by the way. I haven't said that yet. Um, And yeah, I would be upset if that's the only way that it made it out there because there's so many people that follow me on other avenues. So without uh, any more um, prologuing, let's get right into it. So I start off saying that I absolutely loved my 2017 playbook article. not to toot my own horn, but it was one of the few, the first pieces of in-depth writing that I did and put out there that I can still look back on and be proud of. I absolutely read that before I wrote this one, and there's a difference between the two, and I'm going to get to that in a second. 
But basically what I wanted to hit on is that there's still insight in that piece that can still bring someone value today. I talk about uh, YouTubers like Sarah Dietschy and Jonathan Morrison, and I talk about uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs like Chase Jarvis and Gary Vaynerchuk and people that I... So this was at the end of 2016 when I wrote this first article, and now we're at the start of 2019. So basically I'm saying that that piece is just as relevant today. And I want to continue to start to think about that as I start to write more when I, and evergreen content. That's, that's always been a focus of so many of the pieces of content that I make where, you know, you can probably start following me in three years and still go back to like my stagiaire template email and the tips to improve your station videos, all of that stuff should still be relevant. I talk a little bit about um, 2018 and why I didn't write one for 2018. I say I had several course correcting happenings that made 2018 feel more like a boxing match than a slalom run. The idea there being, you know, in a slalom run, you map out the course, you probably do a couple test runs, you your your coach talks you through how you're going to go over this turn and uh, overcome this obstacle, and then the game day comes and you do it, and so you have a plan beforehand. Whereas a boxing match, you can only do so much preparation, and then once you get in the ring, your opponent kind of throws these obstacles at you, and then you are forced to kind of, uh, I say, punch, dodge, or punch back. And I say, to be honest, I needed a year, like 2018. It put everything in perspective, and it's so true. Any lack of clarity or doubt uh, of or sense of direction that I thought I was missing was quickly shaken out in the wash of 2018. And that's why it was very, very easy for me to kind of clarify and define what 2019 is going to look like. So I also say I spoke about it in my 2017 playbook. For someone like me who is very intrinsically motivated to be extraordinary in whatever I do, it's difficult to make progress when you're alone without any sort of organized educational structure or any sort of mentorship relationship because when those are in place, it's very easy for me to climb the ranks because I figure out what the rules are. I figure out how to succeed in playing within that framework. And then I just skyrocket my progress. But when I'm on my own and it's like this vast landscape of do whatever you want, it's a little bit more difficult to, like I said, progress. So I basically say, um, Having achieved a reasonable level of success in the chef arena, I spend a lot of my own personal time learning about how to grow in other ways of life because I can learn how to create better videos, but I start to kind of see those problems as they arise in whatever industry, whatever thing that I'm doing. I look I look at what is the person that's been in this five years longer than me dealing with, and then how can I mitigate the risk to that? So for YouTubers, people that produce content, a lot of it is, I mean, how many people did you see produce I'm burnt out videos this year, right? And Anything that I can do to mitigate that as like a macro problem is hugely part of my strategy uh, all the time. So a lot of what I talk about in this piece is, um, like I said, growing in those other ways of life. I say I will continue to learn in these areas and show what's worked for me because I am a firm believer that it doesn't, not everything that gets preached works for everybody. I will also do my best to curate from all those resources that I consume, because I consume a lot. Some of it gets fed through my routine, some of it does not. And then I will share how I think they can improve your life. So sometimes um, things like ketogenic diet doesn't work for me, but maybe it works for you. Maybe um, 
what is it called? Polyphasic sleep uh, works for me, but maybe it doesn't work for somebody else, or maybe it works great for you and it didn't work for me. Whether that's through articles like this once a year, maybe that's how regularly I do it and that's how I revisit these things that I've been experimenting on. I also talk about the fact that I struggle to think about a year where I would look back and see myself in the same place where I started. That scares the shit out of me. I know I'm on the right track now, which is makes things so much easier, but the challenge comes in making sure that the incremental improvement starts happening now that I know I'm in a good place instead of these colossal shifts in focus, which sometimes feel like progress because the landscape looks different and it's like, oh, well, we're in a different place now. But in reality, they're just changes. Does that make sense? So this piece will be less of a breakdown on how I plan to use the pieces and inspiration from others, which is very 2017 playbook. And this is more of a stream of consciousness uh, description of my thoughts on areas that I'm looking to prioritize and hone in on for 2019. So let's begin. The first pillar that I talk about, and this is a pillar that's very important to a lot of people, is family. So without diving into too many details, I certainly keep a lot of my family affairs off of the internet. 2018 brought to light the importance of family for me. And as much as I found incredible fulfillment around prioritizing my family this year, I went home more often than I have in the past probably almost 10 years. I also developed the self-awareness to see what was, you know, spending time with family and what was actually procrastinating my work. And this is coming from someone who has parents who... One of them is is slightly entrepreneurial. One of them uh, worked in the same job for basically 25 years. And so when I when it comes to doing this work and they know that I'm working and doing stuff on my own, they even though that their health might not be great, they get so much happiness knowing that I'm doing what I love and that I'm making moves. Do you know what I mean? So I can say that I'm going and spending time with them, which is amazing, and I'm going to continue to do that. But I can't do it at the sacrifice of continuing to progress in my own career because I know that makes them just as proud and just as happy as anything else. So I end it with saying 2019 will mean more quality time with family without sacrificing my own personal or professional growth. Uh, The takeaway, and this is going to be with every single pillar that I say. So the first pillar is family, and with every single pillar is going to come a takeaway in this piece, which is also something that I didn't do in the original 2017 playbook. So the takeaway for the family section is basically the lesson of budget time with loved ones like you budget your money. So for example, if you know you spend around $900 every year on gifts for the holidays, it isn't such a surprise if you put away money every single month for that expense. Does that make sense? As opposed to when it comes around, you all of a sudden get so shocked like, oh man, I spent 900 bucks again on Christmas. Well, that should be a system that you put in place. And so I, that's what I plan to do. I plan to put systems in place to make sure that if you know, I need to go visit my mom for three weeks, the content continues to get published. And progress still continues to be made. And that's all on me as far as systems goes, as opposed to me feeling guilty and um, feeling like I'm letting you folks down by spending time with my family. Because the truth is, I can have both. I just need to put the systems in place to make it happen. So that makes sure that I don't put myself in time debt in the same way that you would put yourself in financial debt if that $900 expense always ended up sneaking up on you. The next pillar that I talk about is cooking on the internet. I suffered from a huge 
bout of attempted and selfish perfectionism in 2018. I was juggling numerous projects at the same time. Most most of them were for financial reasons, meaning I needed to make money because this YouTube thing and a lot of the stuff on Patreon and, you know, all this all these uses of my time don't make a lot of money. So, I found myself not wanting to share everything during that process. I didn't want to share, you know, some of the the parties that I was doing that it wasn't that creative of food, but it was a great paycheck. So those were the things that I said yes to or helping my friend with some catering projects or, you know, even when I would get a good event, I was so concerned with like, how much can I take home at this event to set myself up to create more on YouTube for the next couple weeks that I would neglect to hire someone to produce content of that event, which is stuff that you folks probably wanted to see all year. So because of that, the content that I wanted to create personally got kind of deprioritized in favor of the content that was, you know, quote unquote, easy and outside work that was maybe a little bit more profitable. So the answer to why I didn't bring back Dish of the Day, which most of you know is my YouTube cooking series in 2018, is that's the answer, basically. So back in February, way back in February was when I posted my pop up video and I promised it would come back, and it never happened in 2018. So I apologize uh, in advance for that, but this is kind of like giving you some insight into why. I'm going to drink some coffee because uh, I'm, I'm rolling. This is going to be a long one. It said it was going to be a 27-minute read, so we got a long ways to go. But if I had to guess um, why Dish of the Day didn't come back and why I struggled with this kind of, what did I call it, attempted and selfish perfectionism, it's an ego problem, 100%. And as the audience size grows, the performance anxiety creeps in and you don't want to, you fear what would happen if you put out a subpar piece of content. So you produce less, you start to agonize over these little details that really don't matter that much, but they feel like they do. And the last thing that I would ever want to do is disappoint anyone. However, when I started my personal brand in the first place, that's where I need to get back to as far as my mindset goes. I saw that way back in 2015-ish, 2016, I saw a massive white space for someone like myself, and that white space still exists, and it's growing, right? So I plan to lean into all of that content, the cooking on the internet content, and I, because I know that I can do that best, not, maybe not best, like, I, again, hating to bring the ego into it, but the, I have the confidence that I know that I can produce really great content of cooking on the internet. And the rest of this piece essentially outlines how I plan to conquer that in 2019. So the takeaway from this section, the cooking on the internet section, is perfection doesn't exist, but as the audience size grows, so does the obligation to keep promises and fulfill expectations. Realize that and lean into giving people what they want while still still keeping your intent positive. And so that is more or less towards, like, a reminder towards myself, but to anyone else who is interested in building any sort of brand, uh, that's my takeaway, and that's what I want you to kind of get out of this section. So the next, if the, the previous section was cooking on the internet, the next section is cooking off of the internet. So these real person events that I'm doing. So I, I, I start with giving some examples. So I say slinging greasy, slinging greasy meatball sandwiches for lunch downtown, piping gougeres for 250 plus person weddings, 
plating a family-style dinner for the governor of Washington, scaling out massive tilt skillet batches of chana masala for Amazon, planning a last-minute 15-person, 11-course tasting menu complete with non-alcoholic wine pairings. I cooked so much food in 2018. And that is 100% the truth. Every single one of those things happened. And it's so I hate to say that I didn't do a lot of cooking in 2018 because I did a lot. But you folks didn't really see that much of it. And so then I lead in the next part. I say a lot of it was for the money. Some of it was for the experience. Barely any of it was for the resume. And that's basically the punchline for a lot of what happened in 2018 food-wise for me. I had set a goal in in the beginning of the year because I want to execute a $5,000 event. I wanted to graduate from the 500 to nine the $500 to $900 parties that I was cooking for. Those are basically that was my price point. Every single person that approached me with an event was like, well, our budget is like between $450 and $950. I remember the first time I got a $1,000 plus party. And I was like, whoa, this is insane. This is awesome. And I wanted, the reason that I set that number is because I wanted to prove to myself that I could charge a premium for the, the number one, the food, and number two, the service that I provided. I needed to know what it felt like to 10x my revenue, go from 500 to 5,000. What, what, what does that look like? And the next line is that uh, some exciting news. It was a win. I executed three of those $5,000 events this year, each of them with different clients. So to me, that was 100% a win. And that was, you know, revenue in. And the profit was actually surprisingly high on all of those. And what it showed me was that raising rates and standing behind a premium product beats saying yes to numerous scrappy parties and low budget events every single time. Any any time that you can you know do the same product at a higher rate because of whether it's perceived value or you know you aren't necessarily charging that more for the food itself but y- your service is so much uh, above and beyond what anybody else in the market has to offer that clients are willing to pay for you. And you're probably wondering, why not do the same again this year? Why not do what you did again and try to go 10x from here? Why not try a $50,000 event? And that's part of the plan, but I don't want to do it alone. So I realized in my pursuit of profitability and better clients that it doesn't always lead to the most fulfilling work. And I say the cliche, money doesn't buy happiness, wasn't said by somebody poor. I think that's a great uh, thing to keep in mind. And I certainly felt financial pressure in 2018. I took a trip to Europe with my girlfriend in in January, and I was buying things that I thought were making me look cooler on the internet, whether it was from like an electric skateboard to new camera equipment or whatever. And setting goals like that was an incredible driver for me and it paid off. The you, you know the the theory that you think differently when you try to go 10x is 100% true. And anybody that's interested in kind of like seeing this monumental shift in progress in 2019 should ask that question of themselves is what would it look like to do 10x the result or the output or you know what whatever the measurables you're tracking what would it look like to do 10x that? And it's a good question that Grant Cardone, who is an entrepreneur, asks in his book, The 10x Rule, which I haven't read, but you know the principle is pretty pretty clear. 
So what I also lead with next is I stopped working with people that I enjoyed cooking with, and that had to change. So in episode 79 of the Emulsion Podcast, I interviewed my friend Jade of Voyager's Table, and soon after that interview, we decided that working together would be a win-win for both of us. I personally hated the logistically challenging marketing madness of hosting pop-ups, and she really, really wanted to throw more elaborate parties with technically executed custom menus for each of her clients. And we decided that I would be the resident chef, quote-unquote, for the fall-winter season of all of their parties. And in addition to doing things like handling staffing and sourcing product and venue logistics and any back-end documentation, Voyager's Table essentially made it so that I don't have to sell tickets anymore. So they partner with companies like Microsoft and WeWork and Blue Dot and nonprofits and different venues all over Seattle and Vancouver to produce one-of-a-kind events for these people. And then I get to create the menus, manage the staff, and cook more that was the important part, cook more than I ever have before because so much is taken care of. And then on top of that, as far as like how I get paid, I charge a day rate for them plus a consulting fee on any sort of menus or, you know, like we need to staff up for this or we need to figure out how we're going to cook over open fire for 80 people in the middle of the rain for three meals while they're camping. You know what I mean? So that takes a lot of time. And the, the, the reason that it's a good way to do business is because they can pitch my skills to the client, which leads to an upcharge for their top line revenue. Does that make sense? So instead of charging, you know, whatever they would charge for their own personal in-house services, they can say, hey, we have a resident chef. He'd be happy to cook you a menu. They can then bring in five to 20 times the revenue for an event, which results in an increase in business for them. But then also with my background in pop-ups and restaurants, they can finally say yes to these larger scale parties that require more diverse food. So it seems kind of like a no-brainer. And then also I profit regardless of the guest count or the food cost because I charge a day rate that I'm comfortable working with for every single event. Does that make sense? Um, another interesting point of news that is going to lead me into 2019. I am super grateful to have been offered a ownership stake in Voyager's Table. So that means, uh, more involvement with them. I am invested because I am a shareholder in the business. It means more travel. It means a stable source of income. They're going to put me on a monthly retainer. And then it also is an opportunity to feel like I'm something, I'm a part of something larger than myself. So being a growing company, joining on the foundational level is insanely exciting because Jade has a bunch of plans for the future. I have a bunch of plans for the future. I know that they're going to be event slash food slash travel focused. And so I'm very, very excited to see what happens going forward with them. And it checks enough boxes for fulfilling work for me. Plus, I really, really like the team there and the people that I work with every single time that we do an event together. And because it's on an event basis, I get to do both, right? I get to cook and I get to interact with people and I get to plan menus and I get to be creative with food on larger scales than just me cooking in my kitchen here. And at the same time, because it's not a restaurant, I can have time to shoot the podcast and travel for interviews. And, you know, like if we're going to go to Vancouver, maybe I'll shoot a podcast episode. If we're going to go to South Africa, maybe something else happens there. Um, so the takeaway from this section, the cooking off of the Internet 
is I resisted asking for help for so long on my events and my pop-ups because I wanted to prove that I could do it all. And it's not only disrespectful, but it's also not productive for anyone involved for me to have a mindset like that. So my advice, if I had to give something, is to find someone or a team who supplements your shortcomings or anything that you don't enjoy doing, and then give them the same amount of ownership and control that they give you if you want to offload that much stuff. And it pays dividends and it raises all the boats. It's such a no-brainer and it's something that I really learned a lot about in 2018. The next section that I dive a little bit into is called saying no. So when you're starting out in anything, you have no leverage. You have no skills, you have no past experience to prove that you're worth taking a chance on, and you have no proven track record. The, cu- the currency that you're able to trade to someone that has what you want, whether it's you know their name on your resume or the skills that they are able to teach you is your time and your effort and your potential. Those are the three things that you can offer them. So you say yes to the odd jobs, the pro bono work, the networking opportunities, the chance to learn and mess up and grow, often on somebody else's dime. There comes a point, though, where you start to get things figured out, and the work that you said yes to four months ago actually takes you further off the track than just buckling down and continuing to run the track that you ventured down. And I've been crazy fortunate to have partnered with some amazing people and companies in 2018. Some of you probably remember the Victorinox uh, video, the Chrome video. Um, I don't think, was the Hadley and Bennett video this year? Good question. Um, Town Cutler, of course, Eating Tools. And most of these people have also been on the podcast, so they've gifted me their time. And I'm super, super happy uh, to have done that. And I've produced content and food that really resonates and that they are proud of. That was also a really important thing for me, where it's not just... I shoot a video on my phone and send it to them and say, hey, I re- I made a video for you. It's like I went to the Chrome offices in Portland and they were introducing me as the guy who made the knife roll video for us and sold us a lot of knife rolls, aka like not only am I providing value to you folks, but I'm providing value to the companies that I'm partnering with. And that is super, super important because that would be the worst. That would be ho- That would be a horrible feeling if I knew that the content that I was producing was either fulfilling for me or fulfilling for you like it's that triangle right like it has to it has to make all three people happy and that's really really hard to do because there's those stupid memes that say pick two of these three do you know what I mean and so that really was a a really affirming fact of 2018 and the point that I lead to next is that stops in 2019 So Sarah Dietschy, who is a YouTuber that I covered in my 2017 playbook, recently published a video where she talks about a one-for-me, one-for-them mentality and rule when she's producing creative work, and that's what I really want to lead with in 2019. And that idea, of course, being that you need to understand all of the SEO-optimizing, trend-focused, clickable content that helps grow the brand and the audience, right? So it's getting people that are organically just perusing whatever site you're publishing your content to, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or Instagram, and that brings people in, but then you also need to produce content that is fulfilling and creatively stimulating and true to me, the creator, right? So I plan to say no to free product reviews in 2019 unless it's a brand that I reach out to. So I am completely happy with where the audience is now and with the value I know I can provide. 
If it's something where there's a company that I really, really want to work with and get my hands on their stuff, and I know that it would bring a lot of value to you and bring a lot of attention to the channel, I will reach out and say, hey, I will do a video in exchange for free product. And there's actually a couple of things just behind the camera here on the on the workbench that are part of that kind of trajectory and agreements that I've said yes to. But there's also a few products on there that have just sent been sent to me for free, and I, it, the, where this all comes from is I 100% remember what it feels like to send those emails to restaurant uh, to uh, companies. I say restaurants because that's where my head goes. Where I it, the same thing, right? Where I when I started staging, I know what it feels like to send an email to a restaurant because you want to work there so bad. You have no leverage, but all you're doing is just you're kind of like begging. You're just saying, "Hey, take a chance on me. I really want to come in and basically mooch off of you. I want to learn your stuff. I want to see what you're doing, and then I ultimately want to use my experience, my time with you in exchange for time with another restaurant down the road." And so a lot of that is what I did in 2017, 2018. I loved um, the idea of someday getting companies to want to send me things to review um, and then ultimately probably get paid to do that and then ultimately also g- g- use that opportunity to get like make sure that you can get your hands on the gear for either completely free or a really discounted price. So This means, though, if a company like Shun or KitchenAid or Mishima Reserve wants to work with me in 2019, I will share a media kit with them. So I will put together a media kit, which is a pretty industry standard thing to do where you say, this is what my brand is. This is who my audience is. This is kind of like my unique page views and visitors to either my YouTube channel or my website or my kit page or any of the places where I send you folks. Um... I tell them exactly what I can bring to the table and then also my rate. So that's my um, cost per thousand impressions. And if it's a rate that they want to work with, I will produce the best damn content that I can that is true to what I believe in. And then it will be considered a sponsored video. So the past kind of two years of grinding and working for free has 100% been amazing, but as I start to grow some leverage, as the audience size grows, I plan on using that leverage to kind of get out of the mud, right, so I can run faster and go further, and I think that benefits everybody involved. So it's something that I want to make completely transparent, and I want, I've always been transparent with all this stuff. I, I, I have yet to take a sponsored video on the channel, and or the podcast. Um, I've gotten stuff sent out to me, yes, but there's never been any situation where I've been told by a company to say anything good or bad about a product and to hawk it to any of you folks. So the takeaway for this saying no section is come to terms with where you're at in your journey. Back to where I talk about, you know, kind of when you start out, you don't have any leverage. So you need to kind of uh, give a little bit more forward. Um, and while more yeses certainly equal more opportunities, the quality of those opportunities isn't always guaranteed. So saying no is the equivalent of editing. Trim what doesn't work or doesn't get you excited. And then I share a quote from Derek Sivers where he says, quote, when deciding whether to do something, if you feel anything less than wow, that would be amazing, absolutely, hell yeah, then say no, end quote. So the next topic that I want to talk about is called mentorship. 
And I start off by sharing the fact that I have 10 people that pay me $50 a month to be part of my mentor tier on Patreon. And so in addition to supporting the content, they get direct access to me for a 30-minute coaching call every single month. So I set up a document in Google Docs and I help them set their goals. I talk through their ambitions and I track their progress month to month to month. And it's a global community of line cooks and culinary school students and sous chefs who want to grow and learn from someone like me who has done it before. And I think that's an insanely good way to go about it because I know what it feels like to send those emails. I know what it feels like to totally screw up on the line. I know what it feels like to start working at a job and then you progress the person that's been there longer than you. And then what happens when they give you some backlash? Um, I've been in it for a long enough time where I know I've, I've, I've seen these situations before and launching that program, I got to say was one of the scariest decisions I have ever made. I had so many questions like would, would anyone join period was the $50 price point too much? Would people drop out after one or two sessions? And what ultimately happened in my head was thinking about the potential upside, right? So if I can get you a hourly rate raise, if I can get you a job that is more fulfilling in your happiness, right? If I can motivate a move that will then lead to career success down the line, it's it's a steal, right? So and 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 compare that to the cost of, you know, like some of my friends who would move across the country and go and get a job somewhere just on a whim. Either not not just on a whim, but on like this false expectation of what was going to happen. And to think that you could spend a couple months chatting through all of these details with me and not only see if it's right for you, but then also give you a bunch of tools in your toolkit to make these decisions, I could potentially save you thousands of dollars. And so 50 bucks a month um, is a really good price point. I'm still comfortable with it. I have thought about raising it, but I don't think it's something that I'm going to do. Maybe there's something that I can um, offer that is maybe like an hour per month or, you know, maybe there's a tier that's, you know, just below that where it's, you know, kind of a webinar based thing. Um, and the reason that I, 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 I want to continue to grow that facet is because I, I, I checked my Google Docs before I started writing this, and I only have 11 documents stored in Google Drive. That means the dropout rate is incredibly low once the coaching actually begins. So, yes, there are a lot of people who are on the tier, and they don't take coaching calls. They're just super pumped to um, support me with their hard-earned cash, which is amazing. But once someone starts getting coached, it, it it's it's not common to see people kind of stop, which is really encouraging to me that they're getting value from the practice, which is amazing. I want to continue to provide value to the people that I mentor in 2019. I grew up in an industry where you know let your legacy as a professional was judged on how many people you impacted, and I talk about how. If you want an in-depth look at my thoughts on this, you should listen to the second half of my interview with Mike Trong, where it basically turns into him interviewing me, which is great because I love sharing my thoughts and clearly I enjoy talking to the camera, but I think um, I I go much more in-depth in that interview and I'm going to spare it to you um, because it's there already. Uh, I pitched the coaching for a little bit and the takeaway for the mentor section is... 
I think the single career mentor age is over, right? We think about, um, you know, Paul Bocuse says that Ferdinand Poin was his mentor or, um, you know, Thomas Keller says that one other guy from France was his mentor or uh, Grant Ackett says that uh, Thomas Keller was his mentor, but then he was kind of the person who we, he was in that new age where, you know, he says Ferran was his mentor and also Thomas Keller was his mentor. So he had two. And I think we're, we're far beyond that. And we are past that. We all cherry pick from numerous influences to inspire our projects and our actions and our behaviors. And part of that is just the current landscape, right? Everybody has a podcast. Everybody has a YouTube channel. You can read anybody's thoughts on Instagram when they post a photo of their food and why certain things inspired that dish. I think great mentorship is easier than ever to get and even easier to give right now. And I don't want anybody to fall into the trap of thinking that they need to have an in-person influence in their lives because there's so many resources on the internet that you can use wherever you live, wherever you are, wherever you are at in your journey to um, continue to progress. And it works on the flip side, right? If you have achieved any reasonable level of success, please, please, please don't wait to help out the next generation because the idea that you will, you know, live on that, you you will have that perfectly starched chef white with, you know, the silver watch on your wrist and walk around and help people uh, learn how to make sauces better is, is silly. It's, it's silly and it, it's a, it's a waste of uh, shared knowledge if you don't start now. So if you're at that point, please do it just from, from someone like me, please, please, please do it. The next point that I talk about, this coffee is really good today, um, is essentialism. And it's a goal that I set off on in 2018 after consuming content from people like Matt Diavella and Craig Adams and, of course, watching the minimalism documentary. And that mindset switch manifested itself into a couple behaviors that happened in 2018, and I share a couple of those in the playbook. So my girlfriend and I both decided on January 1st that we would not purchase any clothes for the entire year, which is a very ambitious goal to set as most New Year resolutions go. So for her, things fell a little bit off the rails around August. She felt like after doing a little bit of cleaning house with her closet and after spending time saying no to a lot of purchases that she would have normally made. That habit was kind of broken, and she wanted to start replacing a few things in her closet. So she made it to about August, which is like eight months, which is amazing. Eight months, no buying clothes. That's pretty good for people who used to buy clothes, you know, once, uh, twice, four times a month. And for me, in September, I made the decision that I would start to purchase clothes on a one to two ratio basis. So I would get rid of two things in exchange for bringing one new item in. And I had that whole end of the podcast where I talk about um, these t-shirts where, you know, I bought nine of these t-shirts. I set a bunch of my clothes in kind of like a box in the closet and I wore only these nine t-shirts for the whole month and I wanted to see what would happen. Um it's still in three different colors, so it's not like I'm wearing. It's not like I'm uh, Steve Jobsing my uniform at all. But it's something that I really, really enjoyed, and I want to stick to going forward. So, like I said, we both downsized our closets quite a bit, and it extended into other areas of our lives. So we started cooking at home more than ever instead of eating out, just because it was, you know, quote unquote, convenient. 
uh, some, for someone like me, who's such a gearhead, I bought less gadgets, and we decided to invest more in our new apartment, the place that we moved into. I stopped saying yes to projects that didn't bring me joy or provide disproportionate value to somebody else towards the end of the year, definitely. Towards the beginning, it was absolutely different. But again, with these kind of subtle mind shifts, mindset shifts, say that 10 times fast, you start to think about how, like, if I'm deciding to cut down on my wardrobe size, then why am I also saying yes to bringing in money in these areas that also don't make me happy? And it's really interesting how that psychology works. So in addition to all of that, I started working out five days a week, going to the gym five days a week to make sure that I looked better in the clothes that I already owned instead of throwing money at the problem to get the short-term high of a new fashion purchase, right? So instead of, you know, putting on a t-shirt or a dress shirt or, you know, a sweater or jacket and saying, yeah, I'm kind of getting bored of this. Why not spend time at the gym so then when you know you like you look good every single time you put that shirt on and then that problem kind of fizzles out if that makes sense. And all of this, all of this essentialism talk is based on the book Essentialism by the author George McEwen. Essentialism to me has better connotations and meaning than minimalism. It's more about what you choose to consume and allow in your life and less about cutting things out. So much about minimalism is like, look how little things I have, right? And I realize that they're both sides of the same coin, and I realize that a lot of people take minimalism and take it to either unhealthy levels or they take it into a really bad context. And I also know that there's a lot of minimalists that preach the best side of minimalism. But when the goal is quality and intention, which I think essentialism is about, quality and intention, instead of decreased quantity— that I think is minimalism. It's more it's it's a more motivating journey and it continues to inspire, inspire me into 2019. I'm going to continue. It's not like I had this little bout with having less stuff and now I'm going to go back to crazy consumerism. It's even more so. Um a point that I need to actually add to this and I'm going to write it here is talk about parents. Um not only with both my my, my mom moved this year, my dad is wanting to move this year. Anna's parents um, did a little bit of downsizing as well, and upon seeing these (laughs) trials and tribulations of our parents, we start to see how detrimental having a lot of stuff can be, and I think that's a crazy, crazy, crazy um, thing to have to deal with is when you you box yourself in, you you weigh yourself down with all this stuff, and it's something that... um, Anna and I are seeing happen. It's not like we have a ton of stuff, but we don't want to ever get to that point. And I think it was a really, really crucial lesson for us to see our parents struggle with this kind of stuff at, at, at their you know adult age and us being cognizant of, enough to apply those learnings to our own lives. You know, like we could have seen this when we were nine years old and it wouldn't have made any lasting impact. But for us to see like, oh, I know what it feels like to have way too many winter sweaters or I, I know how it feels to have way too many kitchen appliances. I don't want to do that anymore. So it's been very, very uh, pivotal. So my takeaway for the essentialism category is to eliminate distractions before diving into new projects. I think that's really, really, really important. You can have this in your head that you're going to eliminate distractions, but 
if you're in the middle of something, it becomes so much harder to do it, right? Like if you've started that new job or if you've, um, you know, taken on this new responsibility, it's so much harder to take out distractions as opposed to, you know, like Anna and I, before we moved, we got rid of so much stuff before we made the move as opposed to moving in here with a bunch of stuff and then trying to find a place to put it because then it never gets taken care of, right? So this applies to physical clutter, like I mentioned. It applies to mental clutter, right? If you have a bunch of things that you still have to deal with yourself mentally or you're not in a good place, it's very, very hard to take on new things and try to like cram more things into the same space. And then I also talk about relationship clutter, which I think I touch on later in this, In this, but you know, if you have toxic people in your life, if you have people that you know are weighing you down and they aren't providing any value and maybe if they're a distraction, it's time to kind of tidy up that clutter, if that makes sense. So after you're left with what is only essential, then you can ask yourself what you can bring into your life that provides disproportionate value or joy if you're going to add new things to your life. And again, I'm not opposed to adding new things to my life. There's things that I'm going to continue to buy. There's things that I want to consume. And I don't think it's a bad thing. But I think that when you call it essential, then it kind of flips in your head in a certain way. So then I say from there, decisions are crystal clear and speed gets priority because you're light, you're lean, you're nimble. It's great. A long, long, long section we're about to go into, and some of you might want to skip ahead for this part if you're not super interested, but this one is all about health. And so with two recent health issues in my family, my well-being has become a shockingly real priority for me in 2018. Not to a point where I'm kind of like fitness fanatic or, you know, diet guru or anything, but I really started to think about my health more this year. I'm not an unhealthy person. I can still fit into nearly all of the clothes that I used to wear in high school almost 10 years ago. If that gives you any perspective. And I don't take any medications. I don't have any issues that require medical attention. However, that doesn't mean that I still can't improve. So in addition to visiting the doctor and getting a physical done for the first time in half a decade, uh, spoiler alert, everything checks out and I won't have to be back for another four years. That was great news to come from my doctor. I started my own round of self-experimentation this year with a priority on longevity and health span. And those metrics came from a guy named Peter Atia, who is a doctor to a lot of people that I follow. And it's not to say that I'm looking for his level of focus on longevity and health span because he's you know, almost double my age. So these, are, these things are much more top of mind for him. But it doesn't. It, it's not to say that it's basically to say that because he's doing this research and being a guinea pig himself and with a lot of his patients, I can then take those takeaways and use them at, like I said, half of his age. And so hopefully with the benefit of compounding, I can reap the benefits much more down the road. So I go into a couple of things that I experimented with this year and found success in. I started intermittent fasting after a onslaught of trend followers preaching the benefits. And these are my takeaways from my time with intermittent fasting. I was using an app on my phone called Zero uh, to track the time. I don't do it so much anymore because it's more or less kind of a routine that's built into my daily life now. I don't need to track, oh, uh, my last, the fork went down for dinner at 6.30 p.m., 
and oh, it's 10, 10 a.m. I can break my fast now. It's kind of just something that my body naturally got accustomed to. So I've learned to underestimate. I've learned to understand the difference between hunger and thirst. It is more often the latter. When your body is telling you, "Oh man, I'm hungry," and it feels like hunger. Actually, if you were to just drink like 8 to 16 ounces of water, you would probably um, curb that craving. And it's crazy when you actually start to experience it, how often your body is asking for water and we perceive it as, oh, I should probably eat some chips or I should probably, you know, buy that muffin at the coffee shop. And it's crazy. I've grown to notice cravings for certain particularly carb and sugar heavy foods as they arise. it became so apparent when I went back to the Midwest and I was eating burgers and pizza and fries and eating a bunch of Christmas candy. I would get those cravings again and it would just be crazy to, to, to sense like, oh, I need a sugar rush. Let's reach for a Pepsi or, oh man, uh, another piece of pie sounds great right now. And when your when your body swings the other way, your crave those cravings don't happen anymore, and it's really really great to be in that place. Uh, I say that I can physically notice the problems that come from eating near bedtime, and I'm going to get into the sleeping part in a little bit. But when you stop, when your fast starts at around 6 p.m. and you don't go to bed until 10 p.m., your body has so much time to process all of that food. Even if you eat, you know, like I make so much Asian food at home, right? Like I make chicken curry and I make uh, rice noodle dishes and I make amazing ramen at home. And Anna and I love eating pizza. And I had a time, I think it was after I got done working an event, and I was just so freaking hungry. So I ate at, you know, like around 10.30 p.m., and then I immediately went to bed after that, and I could just feel it as I was falling asleep. I was like, man, I do not feel good. And then I woke up the next morning, and I did not feel good because my sleep quality wasn't as good. So that was something that I really, really noticed. And, you know, when you set your fast times in a way that makes sense for the way that you live your life, it's very, very easy to stick to these. Um, it, 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 um, what is it? It snowballs. The, the, the habit snowballs, and it's really, really great. I also say that when you only eat two meals a day, because I only have like an eight-hour window, I'm forced to make those meals count. And your body actually craves higher-quality foods instead of riding from kind of one blood sugar rush to another, and you roller coaster all day long, where it's like you get the spike, and then you crash, and then you spike, and then you crash. It's um, it's not to say that I'm like, I feel amazing all the time, because like I still get the... Um, you know, the, the afternoon slump and all that still happens. I, I, I don't want to tell you that it's the solution for all your tiredness problems, but I ate more salads in the second half of 2018 than I did probably in all of 2017 because it's like bowl of lettuce sounds great right now with some steak that I could like meal prep for the week. It sounds amazing. Um, so those are kind of my takeaways from intermittent fasting. I have yet to experiment with ketosis, even though I attempted, I I had a bit of time and I shared this on the podcast where I attempted to eat more, you know, of a high fat, high protein diet and I didn't have a lot of success with it. It's not to say that I didn't enjoy the eating of that kind of stuff. It's just, I don't have any lofty weight loss goals and I'm not, you know, training to perform at a very high level athletically, right? So I... It was more of a macro picture of, you know, this is really hard to stick to, uh, you know, shoveling olive oil and eating a lot of lean turkey. 
um, it didn't it didn't motivate me as much as it should have because you know if I if I needed to lose seventy five pounds I think I could have dealt with ketosis for a while or a ketogenic diet for a while but I don't have goals like that so I'm kind of sticking away with I'm I'm trying to stay away from that and basically with these rules in place so the exercise that I'm doing and the um, intermittent fasting I can now eat whatever I want which is kind of the best thing. Because um, I, when I do have the option to order healthy or not healthy, I will probably go with the healthy option, but I don't feel like crap if I do have that burger and fries because I still enjoy having a burger and fries. So hopefully that's a decent takeaway for you. This thing on my finger right here, this is a uh, Aura Ring. I purchased this a couple weeks ago. And I use it to track my sleep. So the motivation behind purchasing it was I basically asked myself after I read a bunch of information about the product itself and after hearing a bunch of testimonials, I asked, would I pay $250, which is the price of this ring, for a month's worth of sleep tracking data from a clinic or a study, right? Like if I had to go in and sleep in some laboratory's bed every night for a month and that would be like less than 10 bucks a day, would I pay to have that data um, aggregated at the end of the month and compiled and, and statistically analyzed and they tell me how, to, how I can improve and how I can't improve? And the answer was yes, I would 100% pay 250 bucks for a month's worth of data. And so having a device that I could use to gather very similar data without having to go sleep in a lab every single night it made it such an easy purchase. And now I can track the data for longer than just a month. And I can kind of like compare and contrast um, based on my behavior, which is amazing. Back to like that thing that I mentioned about eating late night foods. I can track that now because I can see how long did it take me to fall into deep sleep. And then how many times did I wake up because I was feeling restless and my stomach was all craziness. Weirdly enough, and this is something that I didn't expect, but I totally see it now. And I guess the same thing happened when I had an Apple Watch for a brief time last year. It serves as a token that's kind of on my hand every single day that I use to remind myself to make good decisions throughout the day. So the motivation I get from checking the app in the morning after I get a good night's sleep, they, t they basically give you like a readiness score out of 100 to tell you, you know, how was your recovery and your heart rate variability and your sleep times and the quality of sleep that you got, that all gets compiled into a readiness score. And when I see that I got a good night's sleep the night before, it pushes me to make more positive changes throughout the day to kind of keep the streak going. Like I'm, I'm stressing a little bit that it's almost 4 p.m. and I'm still drinking coffee because I know this is going to kind of affect my sleep later on. But I know that I've got a lot of work to do, so I would rather, you know, like have this coffee, be insanely productive for the rest of the day today, and then pass out because I know it's probably going to be fine. But even the fact that this ring has me thinking about those kinds of things is a really interesting kind of side effect that I didn't see happening, but it's how it goes. Um, I have developed a better nighttime routine. I am learning more and more about be how behaviors like drinking alcohol and environmental factors, uh, like changing seasons, if it's getting colder or hotter outside, 
they how all of that affects this action that so many of us spend a third of our life doing. And I think that's crazy that more people don't prioritize it. Another point that I started this year after doing a little bit of digging and seeing the research presented by, again, that guy Peter Tia and Dr. Rhonda Patrick, I have consistently been doing three times a week sauna sessions at the gym, which has also been really interesting. So I do 15 minutes at 190 degrees Fahrenheit minimum. So the sauna at my gym is kind of janky and ghetto. So sometimes it'll go like up to, you know, like 205. Sometimes it goes down to like 180, but I try to keep it within that 190 degree window. And it feels great. I just feel good when I kind of sit in there for 15 minutes and listen to a podcast and sweat it out after a workout. But I'm more interested in the potential for positive longevity benefits down the road. There's a lot of stuff related to um, autophagy and increasing the the heat. I'm, I'm going to screw this up because I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to give you too much um, data that I don't have the memory to back up. So if you want to check out anybody's research on heat exposure, and I think it's heat shock proteins that benefit from heat long longer term heating heat exposure at that temperature zone. Um, check out Peter Tia, Rhonda Patrick. They both have a lot of interesting information that it's documented. But starting this early in my life with this kind of practice, as I mentioned earlier, it might make it hard to track. Do you know what I mean? Where it's not like I have any health problems. So it's going to be hard to say when I'm 60, if starting a sauna when I was 26 actually helped extend my longevity or health span. But to me, it's not causing any harm, right? So I only see it as a potential upside, basically, is the point of why I'm doing more heat exposure um, as part of my week. Talking a little bit about mental health and mindfulness, I started the year using Headspace for meditation and my mindfulness practice a few days a week. I wasn't super consistent, but it was something that I would do every once in a while when I had some free time in the morning or when I you know, either needed help falling asleep or if I had something particularly stressful happen, I would meditate. And after being frustrated with Headspace, kind of bouncing around various packs in their app, I didn't really enjoy that experience. I switched to using Kevin Rose's Oak app for the larger half of 2018. And for those of you that don't know anything about Oak, it is 100% free, which was great because I was paying for Headspace. And Oak is great because it's the same meditation over and over and over again. And it's just simple mindfulness um, practice where you kind of focus on your breath, and you kind of start to acknowledge thoughts as they arise and bring your attention back to your breath. And that was basically the gist of it. They have a couple of other um, breathing exercises and, you know, they have a loving kindness meditation that is great, that is particularly beneficial when you're frustrated with other people in your life. But after reading a lot of great things and hearing a lot of great interviews with Sam Harris and his Waking Up app, I decided that it would be good to give it a try. So Tim Ferriss did a podcast with him where they released a couple of um, audio portions from the program, and you could listen to them. And after listening to them, I was like, hmm, I'm getting a little bit more benefit from this as opposed to the practice of listening to the same meditation over and over again. It's kind of like... You know, you could work in a restaurant to tie it back to food. It's like if you work at a restaurant and they have a really great chicken parm dish and 
you think that because you're making chicken parm over and over and over again, you're becoming a better chef. It's partially true, but you're kind of only getting better at making chicken parm. You're not really noticing a little bit more about food as a whole. So you would be better off doing a like a course in Italian food or going to Italy and experiencing these things for what they are and then going back and applying that to chicken parm. That would probably pay more dividends than just cooking chicken parm and perfecting that over the years. So I listened to a few sample episodes on the Waking Up app over my holiday vacation back home, and today, actually, I just paid the $60 for a year's subscription. So it's less than 5 bucks a month, basically, $59.99 for a year. And what it's doing, and what I hope it will continue to do, my first impressions were very good, it is providing deeper insight into the benefits of mindfulness for me. And it's really broadening my knowledge of why having a mindfulness practice is so important. I will most likely, once I get to a point where I feel, whether it's nine months from now or maybe I just finish out the year, depending on, you know, 365 days worth of meditation content is a lot to produce. And I struggle to think that I paid for that with just 60 bucks, but maybe I did. I don't know. Maybe he has a good team in place where he can um, produce that much. But um, basically the plan is if I can get to a point where I can understand a little bit more about meditation and mindfulness and the benefits to it, basically tapping into a little bit like different levels of consciousness then I can switch back to Oak where that repetition of practicing day after day and I can use the techniques that I got from the waking up course or program or app, whatever, then I can meditate on my own for free. That's basically the idea and that's the playbook for my mindfulness practice. Moving on to mobility. I told you guys this was going to be a long section, the health section. I have never been flexible. And that is going to change in 2019. I have got a plan to use weekly yoga routines. So basically, um, we're going to get to my lifting schedule in a second. But in between lifting days, I plan on doing a little bit of yoga. And a lot of it is like strength-based yoga. So I'm still going to be building strength. But I'm going to be doing some stretching in addition to the strength training. I'm also following this great YouTube channel called Bodyweight Warrior, Tom Merrick, as I believe his name, and that's going to improve my mobility drastically. I can already tell just by doing a couple of routines with him over the last month or so. I'm doing some soft tissue work with a rumble roller, and overall, the goal is to be able to hip hinge and touch my toes by the end of the year, and that's been something that I've never even been close to being able to attain. It's just been something that I've just never had it. I've had tight hamstrings. I developed anterior pelvic tilt. Uh, I could just notice it after too many days standing on my feet with, you know, no squatting exercises in my life. I developed a really weak posterior chain and all of that's going to change in 2019. So I have all these resources in place to help make that happen. I have, um, I don't like to perform mobility movements in the mornings when I'm stiff. I feel like as as shitty as I am in trying to touch my toes at the end of the day, it's even worse at the beginning of the day. So I have a quick, you know, between five and 10 minute stretching routine. That's part of my nightly ritual. And that feels so much better after I've had a day of kind of sitting and standing and working. So if 2018 
this is going more into the lifting side of things, if 2018 was the year to build foundational strength in all of these exercises that I'm trying to perform, 2019 means meeting my body's expectations for strength. So what does that mean? So there's a gentleman who, and I'm not going to be able to cite him because I don't remember it, but he, it's, it's pretty well regarded that based on your body's weight, you should be able to lift a percentage of that weight in certain compound movements. What does that mean? So it means like for something like the bench press, the goal I'm pretty sure is 140% of your body weight. So just to make it super easy, if you weigh 100 pounds, you should be able to bench press 140 pounds. That's basically the gist of it. And so what I've done is I've taken all of these movements most of them um, being these, like I said, these compound movements. So bench press, squat, deadlift, the farmer's carry, the reverse lunge uh, with holding a weight on one side, horizontal pull, which is basically like a lat pull down uh, or a row, I don't remember, and then the overhead press. And so I've taken a spreadsheet where I've done the math on my current body weight and I've plugged it in to December of 2019. These are the weights that I want to be able to perform at a one rep maximum or two rep maximum. And then I work backwards towards where I'm at currently in January of 2018. And I have this spreadsheet kind of um, available in the article if anybody, if, if any of you want to look at it, um, where one column is the goal and then another column is the recorded um two rep maximum. So how do how am I going to get there? I'm basically going to use routines and exercises and sets from Jeff Cavalier, who runs a YouTube channel called Athlete X. Uh, there's this guy on Twitter I follow named Alexander J.A. Cortez, and he does a lot of really great fitness-related content. And then, of course, Tim Ferriss with 4-Hour Body. I'm going to use a lot of his resources there as well. So I end this piece saying, expect a year-end shirtless selfie, because that's what I'm going for. I'm just going for overall fitness and health. I just want to feel great. I haven't gotten... The other point that I uh, want to add, and I, I don't know if I'll put this in the article or not, but I haven't gotten sick in a really long time. Like, normally, it's right around the holidays where I start to feel it a little bit, and it just hasn't happened for me this year. I, I, I did get a flu shot this year, which may or may not be part of the solution, but... It's been crazy to feel the benefits of regular exercise and intermittent fasting and a little bit of, you know, I'm a firm believer that if you are less reactive through mindfulness practices, that also impacts your physical health. Because if if you're constantly run down and you're constantly feeling stressed out about things in your life because your mental health is not good, that manifests itself more often than not in physical problems. And so... If there's any takeaway here, and I did write a takeaway, don't worry. I say, I neglected my health from ages 18 to 25. I was 100% career focused, and that provided a lot of professional benefits, don't get me wrong, but it is not a sustainable or healthy way to live. So prioritizing health not only increases the quality of output for every other single category in this playbook, but it will also increase the health span where I will be able to play an infinite game, which is the next section. You don't have to have deadlift PR numbers or log how many miles you've run or flip your diet or carve out time for sauna sessions all at the same time. Or you don't even have to make a change like that tomorrow. However, I implore you to understand that your health is critical to your growth and development. You can't improve if your health sucks. 
And small changes can make massive differences down the line. So things like daily meditation using that Oak app for just 10 minutes a day or doing things like 16-hour intermittent fasting and before bed stretching are just a few amazing and, like I said, free ways to achieve ripple effects throughout your life. And it won't take up more than 20 minutes of your day. If you don't have 20 minutes a day to spare for your own health, I think you have bigger problems to look at. Next topic is infinite games. So the the concept of infinite games is not new at all, but I've firmly now come to terms with how infinite game theory applies to me and my career. The core idea of infinite games, for those of you that don't know, is to not play to win or beat anyone in the way of, you know, basketball um, or you know, um, baseball or any of these rule, any of these games where it's like, there's a score, one team versus another, um, we're going to battle it out and see who's better. The idea of an infinite game is to play, to continue to play the game. If that makes sense. So this applies to things like business, um, anything related to entrepreneurship, or if you think of it in industry terms, like being a restaurateur is kind of like an infinite game, right? Where, you want to have like you want to continue to operate restaurants successfully so you can continue to operate restaurants as opposed to i want to beat so and so down the street in having the best restaurant in the city and earlier in my career it was 100% the goal to be the best cook in the kitchen i wanted to be faster have higher standards uh, produce less waste be cleaner be more effective be earlier be tighter than everybody else and i talk a lot about this in my ego is the enemy video if you haven't watched that yet but once I, once i achieved that success i was sent back to square one when i became a manager and that was really frustrated really frustrating. And then it happened again when I started my own business. And that was very, very frustrating getting sent back to square one. But I love being at the bottom. And I would hate to say that it wasn't extremely beneficial because it was. But when it's happening, when you go from being a rock star to being a equipment boy, it's really, really frustrating to deal with those initial growing pains. And I understand now after coming to terms with playing an infinite game, that some years are going to be full of travel, and some years will be head down, unsexy grinding work. And some years might require not cooking at all to focus on product development, because as I've said in a a video that I actually dropped today, that product development is something that I'm interested in pursuing sometime in my career. And you know, maybe the podcast has to take a year off because I want to travel the world and cook a menu that I spent months working on. And that's something that I, that's like a project that I want to pursue. And maybe I might dive deeper into coaching and partner with certain high-end restaurants to help train new chef de parties. That's also something that I can see myself doing down the road. And maybe I open a restaurant with someone who has a clear vision and needs help. That's also something that I feel like my skills can bring value to. And I'd also love to invest in restaurants and food businesses someday. I'd love to get to a point where, you know, not only can my influence help and my experience and my creative uh, contributions, but also, you know, because I've done all these other projects, I have money where I can use to invest in other businesses. So I'm incredibly patient and I truly realized in 2018 that I have enough time to do all these things and execute on all the visions that I have for my career, but I can't do them all at the same time. 
And I see this infinite game concept as a way to kind of streamline the decision-making process. And it provided me with the speed to answer questions that might cripple other people. I don't worry about getting paid or not getting paid from my content because I'm going to be making this content for years. And I'm able to trade my time and grinding out the work for in exchange for like as opposed to chasing short-term economics, if that makes sense. And I also don't stress about seemingly bad shortcomings because I've got years to improve them and even more upside to grow my current skills. So I will continue to play an infinite game in 2019. And the takeaway for this section is it is so hard to take this advice when you're young. To think about a 30-year career when you're not even two years in is like, how can you how can you even be expected to think like that? It took me up until eight years into my career to start thinking about uh, the longevity of my time in this industry. But I think, and, and I think part of the problem is because it's incredibly motivating to quote unquote win and to rise to a certain level of arbitrary success in whatever industry you're in. However, when you reach the end of that road and you're holding up the semi hollow trophy, of whatever you just chased, it is really difficult to move on from that in a positive direction. And yes, the path that you're on, the journey that you've just started might take three to six years if you've decided that you want to be lead line cook somewhere, or if you want to be a sous chef, or if you want to be executive chef somewhere, that might take three to six years. But how does that fit in the macro kind of 30-year timeline for whatever you want to do? And when you're playing the long game, decisions and relationships and priorities get shuffled around all the time, but it's usually in the best way. Next point I want to talk about is writing. I told myself in school that I was not a good writer. I certainly enjoyed reading, but the concept of putting my thoughts into written word was never part of where I saw myself going. And while I don't still, I still don't think I'm a world-class author or journalist or anything like that, between content scripting and email marketing to you folks and copywriting on places like Instagram and doing client proposals, I'm more confident than ever in my ability to communicate outside of video and audio. It's something that I talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And I have a plan in 2019 to use platforms like Fiverr and Upwork to send my scripts, the things that I write for these videos and for some of the podcasts maybe, I want to send them to real writers to then convert my content, like have them polish it up a little bit. Basically take my ideas and make it sound a little bit more professional and then convert that content into valuable and shareable and easily searchable blog posts, basically, and articles that I can publish online and stories that I can use to kind of uh, guest post on other people's blogs and basically grow the grow the audience through written content. Because like I said, I know a lot of people like written content, and that's totally fine. I need to lean into that. I also plan on growing my email newsletter in 2019 in size and in content quality. So growth is important there. It is an avenue that I see becoming more and more and more and more valuable as attention on other social media platforms becomes very, very saturated. And I see white space in the value that I can bring to someone's inbox that's interested in the same things that I'm interested in. So the takeaway from the writing section is to realize the difference between a weakness and something that isn't developed or learned properly. I had a lot of negative self-talk with myself about writing where I was like, well, I never really enjoyed writing essays in high school, so I must not be a good writer. False. I'm very, very good at writing scripts for YouTube videos because it's something that I love doing and it's something that I really, really, truly enjoy 
And so with that in mind, it makes writing super easy and actually super fun because then I can hammer out a script and then it makes the video shooting process that much easier because I have everything written out and ready to go. So basically the point being, realize that difference between a weakness and something that isn't developed and then weigh after you've decided that if you enjoy it or not because maybe I'm I'm decent at writing but I don't enjoy sitting at my computer at a long article combing through it and editing it so and then you can decide if it's worth automating or delegating and then you can move on so that's basically my decision is maybe I'm okay at writing and putting my ideas down into words but I don't enjoy the process, so I'm going to do as much as I can, delegate it out, automate it, and then post it. That's the plan. So that's the takeaway. The podcast, the Emulsion podcast, is the favorite type of content that I produce easily, easily. And it performs the worst in all the traditional trackable metrics. And it all started as a passion project, and I'm going to continue to produce it. So the question then becomes why? Why, if you're you're pushing so much time into this project and it's performing the worst out of all these other pieces of content that you're producing, why continue to do it? And the reason is the people who like it really like it. Like the, the those of you that really enjoy the Emulsion podcast, you look for you look forward to the show coming out. And I can tell based on the the analytics. And I'm developing true fans by doing that. And it's my niche project with a very, very specific target audience. I am targeting the me's of the world, the ambitious, fine dining focused, um, loves going out to eat people in the culinary industry. And it keeps me sharp at the same time. I don't work in restaurants on the daily anymore. So having a reason to kind of keep my toes wet with what's happening around the world in restaurants is insanely valuable. And I'm a huge fan. It also allows for you folks to get a deeper insight into my views and my opinions. I think that people that produce kind of the clickable short form content can frequently get taken out of context sometimes and they will get confused when they're giving their hot take on certain subjects. And I think that long form content, being able to sit and speak and fully articulate my thoughts on certain things is really underrated. I would hate to kind of put out a tweet on what I think about a headline or a story or something that I've read or some news that's come out and have it completely get backlash only because I was limited to 280 characters on Twitter. So the audience or the interview shows also talking about the podcast serve two functions. They facilitate collaboration. So I get access to these people and also um, get to work with them and kind of get to fuse my content with theirs. But it also allows me to broaden my audience through um, their current audience, right? So they will hopefully channel their audience to come check out the show because they got interviewed on my show. And then in addition to that, it also makes networking a breeze. I've talked about it before. Having a podcast is the best way to network in 2018. It's probably going to be the same in 2019. Maybe getting a little bit more saturated because people are understanding that the space is getting filled up with a lot of stuff. But I know that my content is, is, is still in the early days, so I'm going to continue to produce it. So then the question becomes, what is the plan for the emulsion in 2019? I personally think the show needs more consistency. There will be a new episode of the Emulsion Podcast every single Thursday. No excuses. I have made that commitment to myself, and I'm making it now publicly to you folks. Every Thursday is a podcast day, and 
that's that that's just going to be non-negotiable. And I back to the stuff that I talked about in the family section. I need to put. Uh, systems in place and it's going to force me to kind of um, automate in that way to make sure that the episode gets published on Thursday no matter what and in addition to that I want to continue to get better guests on the show and improve my skills in it as an interviewer and when I say better guests I mean using my show's leverage to provide hard to get access to individuals who have insight that will either help my journey personally things like I have questions to ask them or like a small subset of you folks. And when I say that, I mean like I don't want to water down the interviews once I get access to somebody. So if I am speaking to you know, Dan Barber, I don't want to talk about vanilla topics. I want to get really deep into farming and um, sustainability and restaurants and um all these things that I know that I can tease the best of out of him as opposed as opposed to thinking that, yes, there are 7,000 YouTube subscribers and I need to please every single one of them. So that's also very, very important to me and something that I'm going to continue to focus on. I also think, I think that I want interview shows to be longer. I'm going to experiment with it in 2019. Current interview shows are anywhere from 40 to 100 minutes. And I want to experiment with like, what does a two-hour interview show feel like? And does it provide more valuable content? And I think a lot of that will depend on the interviewee. It's kind of on me to provide enough questions and topics to kind of keep the show moving so we don't fall into the trap of um, repeating the same things or the interviewer, the interviewee gets bored or, or any anything like that. I think with higher profile guests, as I start to get... Um, like I said, higher profile people, it might be priceless time with them. I might not ever see two hours with these people again for another couple years. So I want to make sure that um, with thousands of people consuming the episodes, longer interviews often lead to better takeaways from these people because they don't give the traditional scripted answer or go-to response to some of the... um, questions that people will ask all the time in these shorter conversations. So back to ways I'm going to automate. I have created a SOP document, a standard operating procedure document for editing the podcast, solo episodes specifically, and I will be outsourcing that task to remote freelancers in 2019. So my my time, at least in my opinion, is better spent uh, writing and networking and researching and marketing to do things like get more listeners um, not kind of resizing article screenshots uh, to the left of my face in Final Cut Pro. I don't think that that is the most productive use of my time. So I'm going to outsource that part. And the folks that support the content on Patreon make this delegation possible. So thank you. I am insanely grateful to have that opportunity. Um, on the topic of sponsorships, I haven't said yes to any podcast sponsorships yet. The show doesn't have enough listeners yet. That's basically the punchline there. And I don't know if it ever will have enough listeners. So to paraphrase from some of the best podcasters in the game right now, at 100,000 downloads per episode, that is the time to start thinking about bringing on sponsors. And for the Emulsion podcast, that would represent a colossal explosion in attention to the show. Like we would have to um, exponentially increase the number of people listening to the show. And that's not to say that it's not possible or it's not like a goal of mine, but I, I truly believe that the dedicated audience uh, support is the best sponsor right now, at least at this stage of the show. 
So that being said, due to the incredibly niche nature of the show, though, if the time comes to bring on a brand that I believe could help support the show, I will 100% charge them a premium as a CPM because the value of the sponsor to reach kind of a laser-focused target audience is here. And I know exactly who you guys are, and that's the best part, is because you will then get ads that are related to you through my perspective, like they they obviously have to go through me first, and then it's not wasting anybody's time. And I think that's worth a lot of cash. And so that will then make it so that I don't have to have uh, four or five sponsors per show. I can maybe have one or two, one at the beginning and one at the end. And then because I can charge so much for that uh, sponsorship, yeah, you get it. You get it. So the takeaway being... um, I don't have a lot of takeaways in this section. I do link in the article to a great thread that I read on Twitter that motivated a lot of these changes, but probably the best thing that I say that you can do in the takeaway is just to subscribe to the podcast and let me know your thoughts. You're listening to it right now, so I hope that you're subscribed. I hope that you will continue to listen to the show because it's only going to get better and better and better in 2019. Another point that I talk about in the playbook is YouTube. So I never set out to be a YouTuber. I just wanted to kind of share my ideas and experiment with video to the point where I could confidently communicate with the video producer slash editor that I eventually wanted to hire. And that was the goal from the start. And it basically turned into some of my favorite work to do. I love YouTube. I love producing videos. I love shooting and editing and writing. I love all of it. And I think part of it is going that 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 feeling of going from raw product to finished work and expressing myself creatively and having fun and incorporating the interactive element with an audience, it draws so many similarities to cooking for me. And after kind of like articulating that in writing, did I finally see it where I was like, I understand why I like YouTube because it's like cooking. And so it makes sense why I love it. So the best part about YouTube is the scale that I can operate at, right? Like to me, if I cook a dish above say like 100 people, I then need to bring in others to help execute that idea. I can't do more than 100 people by myself. And so then I equate it to my highest viewed video has almost 80,000 views. So if one idea is a dish and I can only serve it to 100 people at a time by myself, scale that to 80,000. That's crazy. That's so crazy. So I plan to lean even harder into YouTube in 2019. I want to produce more and higher quality videos that require things like offsite shoots and another camera person and things like storyboarding. I want to experiment with what does that look like. And I want to take advantage of um, producing shorter two to five minute long videos. I think that's a really interesting time frame that could, again, draw more organic reach into the audience and lead to more subscribers where that's kind of the cookie that then leads them to some of my longer form content, the kind of, you know, nine to 13 minute videos that so many of you really enjoy watching. Um, I mentioned that I want to start to vlog a little bit more when I travel. I want to collaborate on videos with other YouTubers and other chefs in 2019. I had to uh, change the camera settings here a little bit. It's gotten dark since we started uh, shooting this. That lets you know how long this recording has been going. So speaking of video, it is hard to say if there will or will not be a sponsored video in 2019. I know I talked a little bit about podcast sponsorships, but as far as video sponsors, if there 
is a sponsored video, it will be the first one of its kind on the channel. Like I mentioned, I have yet to be paid to make a video from a brand, but I have set it up from the start where a piece of paid content would not seem out of place. And but but the thing is, I've also seen what audience backlash looks like on an unexpected or poorly pitched ad on a video or on a channel. So I'm trying to be very cognizant of that where, you know, it gets presented right at the start of the video. This is a sponsored video. This is an advertisement. X, Y, Z, because I know for most of you folks, you understand at this point in YouTube's career, YouTube's timeline, that people can get paid to make videos, and a lot of the times you aren't really paying to consume the content, and if you want to continue for it to be free, these people need to get paid somehow. So I feel like as long as you're a little bit more transparent about it, it doesn't turn into that big of a problem. But if the combination of audience support on Patreon and the commissions that I get from Amazon Affiliate covers the cost of the production, I will 100% continue to refuse sponsorships over and over again. I'll continue to say no. I've had a couple of like Chinese brands reach out and ask if they can pay me to make a video about something that they create, and I've always said no because I respect your time. So basically, if, if what I'm making and the work that I'm doing outside of YouTube and the podcast can continue to support me, I'm going to continue to say no until the audience size commands a hard-to-deny sponsorship from a larger budget, if that makes sense. So it's not to say that, yes, Justin has a price, but I put an incredible amount of time and effort into building my brand. And if a company or individual wants to use the platform to market something or share an idea, I am happy to work together because, as I mentioned earlier, those resources of them giving me their marketing budget help the continuation of the infinite game. So my takeaways for the YouTube section is if you personally have been putting off YouTube and a lot of a couple of you have reached out and said that, you know, I want to start doing more content. I want to start documenting my journey. My 2017 playbook has a ton of resources to help you get started. And like I said, they are still just as relevant today. And the potential upside for getting started is just as large, if not larger here in 2019 as it was in 2017. So a lot of this section is speculative. So I'm going to give a shameless plug here and ask you to subscribe if you haven't already so you can kind of see how all these plans play out in the future. Next section is social media. I know we talked a little bit about um, the podcast and YouTube already and then this is going to kind of be fast. It's going to be like a little rapid fire on each of my social media platforms. Aside from the ones that I've already outlined so far, you can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Using an 80-20 analysis, so what 20% of stuff is providing 80% of the upside for me, I've decided that my attention is best spent growing other avenues other than the ones that I just listed. But I do see value in these platforms. So here's what to expect for each one specifically and respectively. Twitter. I need to share more original thoughts as they arise on Twitter. I need to be better at when I have a thought or a quote that I think of or something that I think would bring value, I need to just whip out Twitter and tweet it out. 
And it's not to say that I think I'm particularly quotable, but the ratio of original content to retweets needs to swing the other way for me to see growth on Twitter. I need to have better, you know, smaller hot takes on articles and stories and those should be on Twitter. And again, it needs to balance. It needs to be like you come to the podcast to get my long, deep dive on certain stories. But, you know, the Michelin Guide comes out and a restaurant that's unexpected got three stars. I should tweet about it. And that's, I think, something that is true to the brand and something that I want to lean into a little bit more in 2019. I also want to use hashtags more on Twitter. I feel like there's a lot of people that, you know, especially during trendy moments, there's opportunity for me and my opinionated nature to really crush it on Twitter if I can get used to using hashtags and pay a little bit more attention to that. I also need to practice commenting more on other people's tweets. There's a lot of people that I follow that I kind of just stalk. I don't really uh, respond or let them know what I'm thinking. And part of that is I I don't like the nature of Twitter and the kind of like petty back and forth that can sometimes happen. And it's not to say that I would ever get in a fight with someone, but um, I feel like it's really easy to get taken out of context on Twitter. So um, in addition to that, due to the fact that I'm going to be outsourcing some more of my content um, editing and production, I think asking some of these editors to create shorter meme style videos that recap other content that I'm producing can then be used on Twitter. And then if you see something cheeky that I retweeted or some comment that I made on something, if you come to my page and then you see that, oh, this guy produces content about stuff that I'm interested in, that will then lead to audience growth. So that's the that's the that's my two cents on Twitter. Instagram. Videos will finally make their way onto my Instagram feed in 2019. I posted my first kind of native boomerang today of the knife handle. That's, I think, I want to say the first video that I've ever posted on my Instagram. I have moved past the ideal dream of having a clean and consistent Instagram feed on all my photos. I want to take advantage of the attention on the platform right now because I would regret it if in a couple years Instagram went away. And I want to make it my page basically a buffet of of options for people to start interacting with my ideas. It should be like my business card, an interactive business car- business card. So that means more selfies, photos of me cooking perform better than any other photo that I will post, so more of those. I want to have bite-sized recaps of videos on YouTube, especially content that can survive on its own in a 1 to 2 minute format. Um, I also want to, like, it's, it also might possibly make its way into an original series that is less produced for Instagram. There's a guy that I follow who does, you know, kind of like, um, set his phone on a counter on a tripod and just share his thoughts on specific things to his industry. And that gets edited for him into an Instagram focused show. And I think that could also provide a lot of value because it's less produced, um, And then, of course, I want to do more vlogging using stories and then use that to then make story highlights, which is something that I haven't experimented with quite yet. Uh, Snapchat, something that I actually hopped on this morning for the first time in a long time. I have a surprisingly large number of you folks that follow me on Snapchat, and it makes sense because I am in the market to get the younger audience interested and more motivated and be that force of inspiration for the, the next generation. So I'm basically inspiring people that grew up with Snapchat, and they use it as a messaging platform. So if Instagram stories is something I'm going to use for vlogging, 
I think that Snapchat stories specifically has huge potential for one-on-one interaction and Q&A style interaction with you folks. And the ease of messaging and the ability to share things like behind the scenes content is huge. And I need to develop the habit of using it more in 2019. I need to take it out of my apps folder and put it on my home screen. Facebook, with a large number of people in the U.S. leaving Facebook in 2018, um, it might seem counterintuitive to lean into it for 2019, but internationally, I think the potential is huge. And because chefs live in every single country in the world, I want to develop... using chopped up content and targeting uh, Facebook ads and then deploying that towards my market, the people that I know my demographics are. Basically, the data that comes out from YouTube, I will then cross-reference that with um, different markets on Facebook and advertise my content to them in a way that I think will grow the audience and expand my reach. And then we'll also open up opportunities for travel in 2019 and 2020. LinkedIn, I am a little indifferent on LinkedIn. So I, I, I'm a firm believer that I produce enough professional content that could 100% crush it on LinkedIn. So things like the stagiaire email template video and things that you could then share with your line cooks, right? So like I could produce a video that would get, I like I'm a firm believer, I know in my heart of hearts that some of the videos that I watch chefs and executive chefs and managers love sharing them with their line cooks because they know that it's going to take some headache off of them. Does that make sense? And the the thing the thing that I need to be careful of is I need to be thoughtful about what pieces get published to LinkedIn. I don't need to publish the knife review videos to LinkedIn, although maybe I do, maybe because you've spent so much time reworking your resume and networking, you kind of just want to veg out and watch some dude talk about a new knife roll. And maybe that content does really well on LinkedIn. I'm not 100% sure. I haven't experimented with it at all. But the thing that I'm most concerned about is the quality of followers that I'm attracting. I want to make sure that I'm getting people that are engaged and won't bump heads with some of the other content that I'm producing, if that makes sense. So I want to make sure that if I go into LinkedIn, I can continue to produce content for LinkedIn and someone won't see a video on LinkedIn, go to YouTube, and then not like the content that I post there. And it's not to say that I'm concerned about their opinion. It's that I don't want to create a false promise for them um, when they go, they see something somewhere and then go to the other place and it's different right? So the older demographic is definitely more on LinkedIn. And with a lot of my content skewing towards a younger generation, it's a project that I'll most likely outsource for specific videos only. So if I see that I produce a piece of content, I'm like, this would probably do well on LinkedIn. I will ask a freelance editor to chop it up in a way that makes sense for LinkedIn. And then I will run ads on that on LinkedIn. That's basically the plan. The takeaway for the social media section is if you are focused on building a personal brand in 2019, know your strengths and look at what is most sustainable for you to create with speed and quantity. Quantity is the game when you're starting out. The quality 100% will not be there yet. You can't expect that it will be and that is 100% okay. You need to focus on your audience first, and you need to focus on how to provide them the most value possible. You then should schedule check-ins with yourself to make sure that you're spending time on the right 
things and your attention is in the right places. And then also don't forget to produce content native to each platform. That's basically what I just did in this whole section is this was my yearly check-in in in what is working, what is not working, what should you do more of going forward. And that's how that's how the needle gets moved. The next section, super important, at least to me, is travel. When it comes to exploring the world, I think about what would happen if we ever made contact with an alien planet. And let's just say, hypothetically, if they're on a similar technologically advanced state in where they're at, if they have flying vehicles and communication like we have, we might look around at all of their technological advances and their planet, like all the different landscapes they have, and ask, what's it like on the other side of the planet? And like, I think about, I imagine one of the aliens being like, oh, I've never been over there and neither has anyone from my family. We stay here for most of our lives. And that causes my head to spin. I don't think that that is actually a thing that would actually happen because we live on this spinning organic spaceship hurtling through the solar system where as far as we know, this is the only place worth exploring where you don't have to get decked out in a spacesuit. And you can experience different people and places and food and music and art and landscapes that are better than anything you could ever dream up or imagine. And it's right here. Like, we're, 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 we're traveling on it right now. And it's affordable, right? Like, back to that alien example, you'd probably wonder why, with all the relatively cheap flying forms of transportation, hasn't that alien ventured beyond where they were born or hatched? I'm not going to judge on how aliens get um, brought into this world. In my industry, though, getting insight into other cultures and experiencing new ingredients or techniques and learning the stories behind how environments influence food, I think is an invaluable source of seemingly endless inspiration, at least for me. And I told myself way back, was it 2015, 2016? When I visited Japan for the first time, I told myself I would visit Asia every year for the rest of my life. That was my first trip to Asia and it was the first time I went to Japan, and I loved it so much that I told myself it would continue to be an annual ritual until I died. And I missed out on that trip in 2018. It was the first time in four or five years that I didn't go to Asia. And so to balance that, I've already got two trips scheduled for 2019. I'm going to Japan twice. So once for a video project with Dosfi, and again with my dad, because it's been on his bucket list for years, and I want to make sure um, him and I get to go together. I would also like to visit India again, but we will see if that plays out or if I will wait for 2020. I already have a trip planned to Thailand for a wedding, and I want to hit up India at the same time. So India next year, might this year might be Japan and a little bit of South Korea. And then the year after that might be Thailand and India again, which is going to be great. Um, I'm also realizing how much travel benefits the foundational content I produce if I can make more trips on my own, because then I can increase the amount of footage that I shoot, which then makes producing content when I get home so much easier. So between in-person podcast interviews to this place called Food Vlogs and picking up gear for things like the quarterly gear boxes, I think travel benefits you just as much as it benefits me going forward. So um, if I get to a point where the support is more than paying for the work that I need to get done to produce the content here at home, that support will then go into, you know, more content because I can only imagine all the stuff that I could get done in, you know, a week trip in a week long trip in San Francisco, you know, like all the restaurants I could go to and eat at and gear I could pick up and people I could interview and the, you know, behind the scenes I could show, um, 
I think travel is going to be a huge part going forward. And it's something that, you know, just due to the nature of how my year was in 2018, I didn't get to do that much of. It's not that I didn't travel. It's just I didn't get to travel as much as I'm used to. And it's super important to me. So I'm going to do more of it in 2019. So the takeaway in the travel section is, yes, some people are homebodies, and if travel causes you more harm than good, I don't want to force you into anything. Don't get it twisted. However, as the saying goes about comfort zones, traveling, I think, is the best way to change so many things about your behavior and shift up um, how you're living your life. And for me, when thinking about the times when I'm the happiest, it's usually when I've got a backpack on my back and a camera in my hand and food in the other hand, and I somehow need to figure out a way to navigate a foreign city to make a reservation that I scheduled at a great restaurant. That's when I'm the happiest. So I plan on leaning into that more in 2019. The next section is automation slash delegation. This topic is crucial because it was arguably my biggest downfall and something that I learned the most about in 2017 and 2018, the past two years. So when the brand literally has my name all over it, it was so easy to hoard control like Smeagol in the ring. It was my precious. I didn't want to give it up to anybody. And the worst part was I knew the benefits of delegation. I like intrinsically knew in my head Justin, if you want to grow this thing and it's going to be bigger than you, you need to be good at delegating the responsibility. It just makes sense. All the books I read, all the great entrepreneurs I followed, they all preached this practice. But when it came down to actually putting the systems in place to help people prep the menu or edit the videos or write articles from my content, it never happened. And I was too afraid and I let my ego get in the way. That was basically the punchline of why I didn't do more automation and delegation in the past. And I've already touched on it in this very long so far podcast, but 2019 will be the year of explosive growth because I've come to terms with relinquishing control in exchange for more higher quality output. So I've read a couple books. Um, of them, the ex- the effective executive has been really good. The E Myth Revisited is insanely good for someone like me, and the Four Hour Workweek still continues to inspire me. It's something that I read, oh man, way back in like 2013. So the idea that I should be the one to execute every last detail seems ludicrous after reading all those books. So those have been very very impactful for me. I am starting the year using Upwork, which is a platform where you can hire freelancers from all over the world, and I've already got a really great pool of freelancers to help with editing. Um, Delegation and automation are the clear next steps forward for me, very similar to the health section as um, a lead domino. So if I can get delegation and automation down, those two will directly impact everything else right? So with less on my personal plate, I will be able to expand into new platforms and grow the audience and afford more opportunities and mentor more and travel and spend more time with my family. Does it all make sense, right? So that's, that's like, if um, health leads to less burnout and more conscious, uh, higher output time on the content, the delegation is basically like buying my time back. And that pays dividends down the road easily. The takeaway with the delegation and automation section is I find it much more inspiring to look at my work now as an architect in building systems and designing the machines as opposed to kind of being a technician that works on fitting parts on the chassis, if that makes sense. So it doesn't mean that I won't still get my hands dirty because it's work that really makes me happy, but I'm learning all of these new skills that will ultimately make future decisions easier and more effective. 
So that leads to the end of all of the large topics. The last area of this article is titled Some Tips. And I I admit it. I admit it in the article. I say this has been very in-depth. So I want to end with a few rapid-fire points that I've learned and plan to take into 2019. And let's just go down the list, shall we? When working from home, get out of your pajamas as quickly as possible to encourage productivity. You wouldn't show up to the office in your sweatpants, so how can you expect to get work done at your own business? I struggled with that a lot. I would basically, you know, get up, have a cup of coffee, do my meditation, and then, you know, you're on YouTube still at 1030 in the morning, and you're like, why haven't I gotten anything done? And then you look down, and you're still in your pajamas, and you're like, oh, okay, as opposed to other times when I would look at myself and I'd be like, oh, I went to the gym super early, showered, got my normal clothes on, and now I feel like I'm like in work mode because it's like, I don't want to go sit on the couch in my jeans. It's just not as comfortable. It's like you take yourself out of this comfortable, cozy sleep uniform and you go into like a get work done uniform. It's 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 dramatic how things change once you do that. Another tip, buy a large vessel for water and keep it near you. This one is just underneath the camera there. I use a one liter Nalgene water bottle. And the goal for me during the day is to fill and drink it three times. First, within the first hour of waking up. It's usually right when I wake up. It's the first thing I do. I then fill it up and drink it again once during the day. And then I also drink it within one hour of going to bed. And that's very important because if I go to bed at 10, I try to drink it by 9 p.m. So then it has time so that I can pee before bed. So then I don't drink a liter of water and then it disrupts my sleep because then I have to wake up in the middle of the night and go to the restroom. Um, lightly seasoning coffee with salt as you brew it is actually pretty tasty. That was a tip that I got from Ideas and Food. They were like, why don't we season coffee? And as long as your water quality is good, I'm talking like less than you would season, I don't know, like a piece of fish, like a piece of nigiri, like a piece of sushi. Less than you would season that is all you need for brewing a cup of coffee. Just put it in with the grounds when you brew it. It really makes a difference. Um, And I also, just for anybody who's wondering, I use an AeroPress when I make my coffee. Saving 10% of your paycheck is underrated and everyone should do it as early as possible. I'm going to let that sink in. 10% of your paycheck. So if your paycheck's $1,000, you put $100 away until you have six months of expenses saved in cash in your bank account. And then you should start investing. This took me up until 26 to learn. And thankfully, I had a couple of large projects that I did in 2018 that provided me to reach that level of savings and personal finance stability faster than, you know, saving 10% of my income for years at a time until I hit that point. But um, yeah, I can't, I can't understate enough the amount of security that comes from going from living paycheck to paycheck to all of a sudden having an amount of saving is ready to go. And then also being past that where I can start to think about investing now. And it's very, very motivating. And personal finance is something that I um, took very seriously this year. And it feels great. And I didn't create a chapter on it, but it's something that I wanted to use as a tip at the end of this section because I don't think that I'm necessarily a pro at it yet. But um, I think that's an actionable tip that you can start using on your next paycheck um, to then take your take yourself to the next level. Uh, I wrote down AirPods are worth the money, 100%. It was one of my favorite pieces of tech 
last year. I bought it when I moved here in 2017, and they're still rocking and rolling. Something that I use every single day. I love my AirPods. Another tip, hire a CPA to do your taxes if you have an LLC. Just the facts. You should just you should just have someone there because literally, um, I hired a shitty CPA my first year in business, and when I got my second CPA, she literally told me that if something went wrong with my taxes on my first year, that I could, um, if the IRS ever said anything, I could tell them that I had a shitty CPA do my taxes, and that would give me like not an out, but it would like give me some forgiveness on some bad tax practices. And it's it's the same with anything else. I would not want to self-examine myself because I'm not a doctor. I don't want to dive deep into my taxes because I'm not an accountant. So I think you should hire an accountant. Plain and simple. Uh, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate was worth the wait. Absolutely a huge takeaway for 2018. Um, such a good game. Such a good video game. On the movies front, so many those of you that follow the podcast pretty closely as well as on Twitter know that I love going to movies in the theater especially so into the spider-verse uh avengers infinity war incredibles 2 ready player one and molly's game provided me the most fun at the movies for me this year if you haven't seen any of those movies i highly recommend it um another thing that really paid dividends for me this year before you go to bed set a 10 minute alarm and tidy up just spend those 10 minutes without your phone maybe put a podcast in if you want but just spend 10 minutes tidying up your place, where you live, your abode. This not only sets you up for a clean start in the morning, nine times out of 10, if you do this day after day after day, it helps a lot, but it also drastically reduces the time spent cleaning on your days off. So if you're the kind of person who will just kind of like, "Eh, I can wait until my day, day off. If you get into the habit of 10 minutes every single day before you go to bed, just, you know, do the dishes real fast and fold some laundry and, you know, put away some equipment that you use that day. Um, it really, really helps. And it's something that I will continue to do. It's part of my nightly routine now. And I love it. It's, it's great. It helps a lot, especially someone like me who works from home. Uh, I wrote down Japanese is difficult to learn. Like I said, I'm going to Japan twice this year. So I'm really trying to buckle down because that trip happens in like three months. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. I'm I'm trying. I'm really trying, but it's hard because you have to learn another alphabet as well as these different noises that your mouth has to make. And yeah, it's hard. I'm trying. I'm using Duolingo. We'll see what happens. Uh, I learned this year that waking up early will never be fun. And I think that's something that even people 20 years older than me can also attest to. Waking up early is n- will never, ever be fun. And you just have to deal with that. Once you accept that, you can move on and just take roll with the punches. I love flavored sparkling water. That's something that most of you that watch the podcast on YouTube saw this year. I drink a lot of LaCroix and I love it and I have no shame about it. It's a really, really good, it's something that I love. The The thing that I don't like and the thing that I would maybe invest in this year is something where I can make my own at home, whether that's through a machine or buying in larger quantities. I don't like producing a lot of can waste by drinking so many LaCroix, but I love sparkling water, flavored sparkling water. Uh, I wrote down, money is important, but isn't always the answer. I think that's very important. Think about that. Uh, invest in your bed. Uh, Anna and I got a Tuft & Needle Mint mattress this year. Amazing. It's so amazing. We were sleeping on a almost 10-year-old box spring mattress before then, and between just like the comfort that both of us have in the sleeping part, the lack of moving around motion that happens in the bed, amazing. Um, highly, highly recommend investing in a good bed. 
um, something else I learned this year. I guess I knew it, but I want to like give it to you as a tip is it's better to be a ninja with the gear than to own the gear itself. And I'm going to let you think about that for a second, but it basically means don't buy an amazingly sharp, high carbon steel bone handled knife if your knife skills suck, right? Like I see, I get, I have way more respect for someone who can, like I said, be a ninja with like a $30 Victorinox knife and crush it rather than the person who, what did, what, what did I say here? Than to own the gear. It's better to be a ninja with the gear than to own the gear. And I've said this a million times, but I'm reiterating it here because I think it's so important. Um, another practice that really, I don't know where I got it from. I don't honestly think I got it from anybody. I, I think I made this up myself. When you wake up, splash your face with cold water three times. So go in the bathroom, run the cold water, splash it on your face one time, two times, three times, three cold water, three times, then look up in the mirror and smile at yourself. And this provides almost all of the benefits of this cold exposure that you've been reading about because it's like taking yourself out of the comfort of your bed. Um, it's something that you don't want to do, but you're overcoming the hurdle and you're doing it. Um, your face is very sensitive. So that shock of uh, cold is perceived right away. And it also releases the chemicals that come with smiling. So that's been very proven that smiling produces chemicals and it's really, really good for your mental health. And then it also gets you by looking at yourself in the mirror, you get used to seeing yourself smile, which is great period, but you get used to seeing yourself smile in uncomfortable situations. It's just something that I started doing this year and I love it. It's I I don't know what it does. It's like it changes my state when I wake up in the morning and then it leads to great things throughout the day. I can see it like actually, um, dominoing into other positive rippling out into other positive things throughout my day. Uh, learning to cut my own hair is still one of the best things I ever did. It's not something I have mentioned publicly. I mean, I, I mentioned it publicly, but it hasn't been written in an article yet. So this air, this tips area has kind of more or less been, uh, my dump for all these things that I, have wanted to either make a video on or have wanted to share somehow, but they've never made it their way out into the real world. So this is my way of sharing those things. I learned to cut my own hair when I was in Norway because haircuts were very expensive and nine times out of 10, they weren't that great. And they were from, you know, like Turkish guys or Polish guys that, uh, you know, would give you these haircuts, but you would look like a, I, I felt like I looked like a kid from New Jersey, like an Italian guy from New Jersey, whenever they would give me a haircut. And so I just bought a set of clippers, taught myself how to do it. The first few were pretty bad, and I eventually got to a point where now people compliment my hair, and I say, oh, I cut it myself, and it's great. Because the other flip side of that coin is, like, I learned to stop caring about my hair so much. I used to stress out so hard when I would go to a barber, and they would cut my hair, and I would think to myself, man, that was a really good haircut. And if I didn't get a, n a nice haircut the next time, it was really always disappointing. But now, it's like... I cut my hair the same way every single time. I know it's going to be the same. It literally takes me less time to cut my own hair from start to finish than it would for me to get in the car, drive, park, and sit in the waiting area at a barbershop. Not to mention like, you know, I can immediately then shampoo my hair after that. And yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I'm busting out my clippers all the time to clean my, to clean my beard up. So I got to like... It's, it's, it's one of the best investments I ever made. Saves me a lot of money every year, too, because I'm not paying 40 bucks a haircut. 
uh, I came to the realization this year that YouTube music isn't as good as Spotify, is not as good as Spotify, but YouTube premium is 100% worth it. So I'm pretty sure with my YouTube premium subscription, I get YouTube music at the same time, but I don't use YouTube music. I use Spotify because it plays on all my um, Amazon devices, and also I buy like a family plan, and I share that with my little brother and Anna, so everybody, all of us have Spotify premium. But with the amount of YouTube content that I watch, YouTube premium is so, so worth it. Um, the lack of ads is great. I love it. It saves me so much time during the day. And I, it didn't really hit me until I, I interacted with someone who didn't have YouTube premium. I saw an ad on a YouTube video and I was like, whoa, I forgot what these are like. So miserable. So much better to just pay for it. It's like 16 bucks a month. Totally worth it. Um, another little tip, avoid carbs until after... 12 noon so important it's like part of the fasting regimen that i was on for a while where i would just not eat until around 10 10 or 11 and avoiding carbs until then was one of the best decisions ever because you set yourself up for failure if you eat carbs early in the morning or like first thing in the morning if your first meal is like a donut or a pastry as much don't as much donuts as i like to eat I never feel great after I do it, at least first thing in the morning, because you give yourself that blood sugar spike and then you're going to crash later. Um, not too much to be said about that. Avoid carbs until after 12 noon. I like to eat carbs like for dinner, like um, rice or pasta dishes, uh, bread with soup. Um, great for dinner, not great for breakfast. Um, I mentioned this a little bit already. I highly recommend cutting out that toxic person in your life and replacing them with someone positive, optimistic, or smarter than you. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be this whole revamp of you're the result of the five people you surround yourself with. Like you don't have to take those five people and just say like, peace out dudes, I'm out. Um, but you should replace one toxic person in your life with someone more positive, more optimistic, or smarter than you in 2019. Just a tip. Uh, a quote that my friend me Kim shared with me that I think I, I want to reiterate here is drinking alcohol is borrowing happiness from tomorrow. So true. Uh, another thing that I learned in 2018 and a little bit in 2017, credit card points are only worth it if you're going to be spending the money anyways. Don't go into debt to get 3% cash back. Let that sink in for a second. Uh, and the last little uh, pointer tip situation is you can probably get away with packing less. And that has to do with travel. That has to do with um, the way that you kind of move from place to place. That has to do with um, the way that you kind of load out your knife kit. That has to do with a lot of things. I moved to Norway all those years ago, only expecting there to be there six months. I moved there with six months worth of supplies, quote unquote, and nothing happened. I survived. I lived there for almost three years and it was great. It was some of the best times of my life because I wasn't held down with a bunch of stuff. And I think that when it comes to a lot of things in your life, you can probably get away with packing less. So that'll do it for this article, this 2019 playbook of mine. I ask in the article for you to kind of comment and give a like, give myself an applause or whatever you do on Medium. Um, I also love the conversations that the internet is able to facilitate. So any comments that you leave on that article are always appreciated. If you leave any comments here on YouTube, it's also very, very appreciated. Or, you know, if you're listening to this as a podcast and you're commuting or walking your dog or you're at the gym, 
please tweet at me. Let me know um, if any of this resonated or if, you know, you think I'm out of my kooky, wacky mind of doing some of these experiments or moving forward in any of these directions. It's not to say that I'm going to change anything, but, you know, if you're like, man, you should be sponsoring yourself now. You should get sponsorships now. Um, or, you know, I, I, I really don't, I really think you should try drinking coconut water in the afternoons because it's going to work great for your lifting performance. I don't know, share any, I've shared, I basically laid it all out on the field for you. You know exactly what I'm going to be doing in 2019. Um, as much as I like to say that this was completely transparent, there's always like projects in the back of my brain that I still want to do and, uh, things that I still want to get done and stuff that is like, I've set myself up for an easy layup, but I just need to like buckle down and do it. Um, but that is basically the audio version of my 2019 playbook. And I really hope you enjoyed it. I really hope that there, the takeaways were valuable. It is a hundred percent free and available in written form. If you want to go check it out and check in on it. Um, or if you're like, you know what, what did Justin say about this fasting thing? Or what did Justin say about automating or whatever? It's all available on this medium article that I posted. Probably going forward, this should probably live on my website, so the traffic uh, goes to me instead of Medium, because my Twitter following isn't that crazy. But um, the other great thing about the article is that it's linked up with a couple of hyperlinks. So if you want to know what water bottle I use, or you want to link for those some of the books that I talked about, um, or some of the creatives that I'm following, um, all of that is available on the article form of this, which you can find on my Twitter. It's also linked up um, either in the description tab of this podcast or in the um, description area of YouTube. So without further ado, I really appreciate your attention in listening to this entire episode. Um, I hope you have a great start of 2019. I'm obviously going to see you real soon. I have a lot of exciting content coming down the road, um, but I appreciate you if you've made it this far into the show. Let me know your thoughts. As always, my name is Justin Kana. I hope you have a good one.